Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to our Genetics Masterclass, Part 2. I'm joined once again by Dr. Hilda High, Genetic Oncologist from Sydney Cancer Genetics. In this second part of the Masterclass, we discuss the practicalities of cancer genetics, including FAQs from healthcare professionals, ancestry genetic tests, insurance coverage, lifestyle factors, and communication skills tips for oncologists. And just a reminder that healthcare professionals can access all of our podcasts for free by joining the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free. This is Rachel Bavin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Do you feel when oncologists are discussing potential treatment options based on genetic tests with patients that they have the right communication skills, that they take the right approaches when it comes to explaining these you know, fairly complicated nuances of gene test results? I think that the genetic test results can be complex in terms of what's been found and what it means. I think also some specialists know their specialty very well, but may not really have a grasp of where cancer comes from and how genes work. And when that's the case, the analogies that are used may not be all that easy to understand or that accurate. So the analogy of the cake recipe is really a very accurate way of how genes do tend to work, how they all work together and things can be more complex, more like a play uh, than a simple recipe. But in terms of how these things are often explained to patients, I think that there are definitely specialists who don't have a good understanding. And as a result, that gets perhaps poorly translated when they're having those discussions with patients. Thank you. And now what about saliva-based tests? Are they accurate? Once we have the DNA, it doesn't matter whether that's come from a blood test or a saliva kit. It's the type of testing that's done. A lot of the so-called direct-to-consumer tests that involve a saliva collection are looking for very different things. They're not looking for all the way along the gene They're not looking at the right kind of depth to be able to say there really is no mistake here. So when you're doing a genetic test looking for inherited cancer risk, you can use saliva, you can use blood, but you need to use a NADA accredited lab and you need to test the correct genes. Thank you. Now, what about the DNA tests, which are becoming quite popular that people use for sort of family history and ancestry purposes? So can these kind of ethnicity and genealogy DNA tests reveal genetic mutations that might be linked to cancer? The short answer is no, and that's because they're normally looking for what are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, single letter mistakes in genes or repeating patterns in genes or nearby genes that are common in people from a particular heritage or genealogy. In terms of that, The labs are often specifically not testing for genes that could be associated with increased cancer risk. And a good example of this is the three common Ashkenazi founder mutations. These are three mistakes that occur within the BRCA1 and 2 genes that have been passed down over nearly 2,000 years within that Ashkenazi population. 
and there's a higher chance of finding them. But most of the ancestry no longer test for those three spots, in part because they don't want to be sued for being a medical test when they keep pointing out that they're not a medical test and that's why they didn't have to go through the FDA approval process. I think one other thing to say on that is that I probably five, six times a year will see somebody who's had an ancestry test and then paid extra money to have the DNA analysed through a third party. The issue here is that SNP, that single letter change, could be a change in any one of the three DNA letters of code. So some of these changes, when you put them through this third party, will say, oh, my gosh, there's three mistakes in bracket one and two in bracket two and a whole lot over here. These are not accurate. It's simply saying there's a mistake somewhere on page 26. So the ancestry tests, great for ancestry. Don't waste your money having them reanalyzed. If you want to know about your cancer risk or other risks, get the proper test because when you reinterpret it, the changes that are found will almost never be the kind of mistake that's going to cause problems. Oh, that's a really interesting kind of practical insight because I do remember when these ancestry tests first became quite popular on the market, there was a kind of commentary within the medical community about what kind of things that they will test for, what they will reveal, and, you know, the lack of things like counselling being offered before testing. So it's interesting how that has evolved with the companies themselves making the decisions, I'm sure, to avoid litigious situations. (laughs) But I hadn't realised about the involvement of third parties like that. And do you see companies who are offering something like that as you know, slightly unethical, really. I actually think it's really unethical. As I said, I have somebody who turns up with being told that they've got Lynch syndrome because of mistakes in a gene that goes with Lynch syndrome. You look at what's been reported and it's a location marker. The issue is, again, like we said, there's a big difference between beet eggs good beat eggs well and beat cats well, that's going to make a very big difference. You want to know what is the change. So then that person's now spending more money to investigate a genetic mutation, which is possibly there, a change that's there, but isn't the kind that causes cancer. And that testing's not funded under Medicare when you do a saliva test. So people should definitely be wary of these more irresponsible organizations and seek out the experts advice the genetic testing with a fully qualified registered medical professional just absolutely (laughs) exactly and I think the thing is don't repurpose the test if you go and get an x-ray of your chest you're not going to interpret that as disease in your toenail. So just make sure that you (laughs) use the test for what it was intended and don't try and get any more information out of it because it'll be incorrect almost always. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so can the results of these genetic tests impact people in more practical ways? I'm thinking things like insurance premiums, the kind of cover people are offered and their children as well. So yes, it can. The issue is it doesn't affect travel or health insurance and it doesn't affect any existing policy. 
It can affect a new or changed life income or disability policy, not just for the patient, but for their relatives that are one degree away. So brothers and sisters, their children, their parents. What people forget, though, is that the cancers always have a bigger impact. Plus, for things like income protection, you can't actually get income protection if you've ever had anxiety and depression, and that's probably just excluded half of Australia after COVID. But in terms of this, you can still get insurance if you need it. In terms of there's a moratorium in place at the moment that says that they won't ask about the genetic testing, you don't have to tell And that's for $1,000 a week of income protection, half a million dollars of life insurance, which is what people sort of accidentally get through their superannuation policies. In terms of if you want a very specific policy, then you nearly always have to disclose the family history. That nearly always has a much bigger impact. Plus, if like Angelina, you do carry a mistake in a gene, BRCA1 in her case, and you have the breast tissue removed, the ovaries and tubes removed, your risk of cancer is actually lower than the average person. And the policies normally reflect that. Plus, if you don't carry the mutation that's responsible for the cancers in the family, and we've done a predictive test to show that, then your policy, again, should go back to being average. So it gets a lot of media play. But most of the time, surprisingly, perhaps, genetic testing usually reduces policies, not increases them. Ah, again, a very interesting practical insight because you can imagine that people might be worried about that now it will affect their children moving forward if they do decide to get tested so that's really useful to know. And I think just on that it is important to point out that some of the people who are complaining that they can't get insurance one of the reasons they can't get insurance is because they've had a cancer that nearly always precludes you from life insurance income disability. Yes exactly. So now I'd like to move on to healthcare professionals and what are the typical questions that you get asked most by healthcare professionals? Well, probably the first one I get asked is, how come you don't do any (laughs) 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 on-call? There's not much call for an emergency genetic oncology consult. So no, no on-call for me, which is great. It's also a very low-paying professional specialty, but one that I really love. So no, jokes aside, the things I normally get asked are, who should I refer for testing? In this case, I'd normally refer them to the Sydney Cancer Genetics website, our website, or the EVIQ guidelines, the National Management and Testing Guidelines. Sort of a back of the envelope thing is sort of young onset cancers, rare kinds of common cancers and multiple people in the same family with the same sort of cancer. So there are guidelines on who should be referred. That said, I will always see families that are concerned, and there are genetic counsellors and other people working in private that can see patients as well, even if they've not had a cancer. The other question that I'm often asked is, well, can't I just do it myself? And the short answer there too, of course, is yes, of course you can. But the issue is you just need to make sure that you go through the right process. As you said, there are questions that need to be asked, discussions that need to be had with the patient in terms of what are the limitations of the testing, what are the implications of getting a genetic test done, what are we going to do with these results. And also I think perhaps as importantly, making sure that you're testing the right genes. You don't want to miss a family history because you're a specialist in one area and you're just looking for the testing in that area. 
Yes, that's an interesting point as well. I enjoyed your little shout out perhaps to trainees who are looking for that sweet spot for the work-life balance, that this is a field that you obviously are very passionate about, but you can combine with all your other interests and you're not going to be called into the hospital at four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it feels like there are all these new discoveries, new testing options, gene editing, all these things being developed really frequently now. Are you hopeful for the future? I'm very hopeful. I think that soon when somebody is diagnosed with a cancer that will test both the tumour and the germline so that we can look after the family and the patient. One of the things that has happened because we have gained extra understanding about how cancers grow because of mistakes in genes. We've been able to target therapies and also intervene earlier to help prevent them. I think that we can't fix a mistake in every cell of an adult, and I don't think we'll have that technology not for many years. But we do, as we discussed, have technology to prevent the mutations being passed to the next generation already available through the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I think that the tumour testing will develop into more and more personalised care. And by that, I don't necessarily mean very expensive or newfangled treatments, but more not using a treatment that perhaps that cancer is resistant to, perhaps cutting down on the amount of treatment, whether that's chemotherapy, radiotherapy that we're using. And I also think that There is a lot more testing becoming available in other fields, such as neurology, cardiology, other areas where mistakes in genes also have often devastating impacts that we can now screen and test for. Thank you. Was there anything else that you'd like to mention or perhaps a take-home message for the listeners? I think the take-home message is to be aware that only about 5% of, say, breast cancers, bowel cancers, are caused by inherited mistakes. But for those families where that is the case, knowing about it means you can do a lot about it. I think there's a fear around genetic testing. I just don't want to know. Well, if you've got no family history, don't do a genetic test. But if you've got a family history or you've had a cancer, you already know about your risk to a degree. And so the genetic testing actually tends to reduce anxiety in the long term. I think it's really important to know about your family history. If you know that there are lots of young relatives that have been impacted, then maybe genetic testing is the way to go. I think that also leads into the idea that doctors should be taking family histories and that they should be aware that these are things that can change over time. It doesn't have to be hard. We have a family history questionnaire that anybody can download from the Sydney Cancer Genetics website, fill out and take to their doctor to discuss. And I also think one other thing that is often forgotten is that because all cancer is genetic, because it's caused by these mistakes that build up fairly randomly over time in our cells, there is a lot you can do to reduce that risk through lifestyle change. So healthy diet, regular exercise, maintaining a healthy body weight, not smoking, not drinking, all of these things can help and may even reduce a cancer risk by 30 or 50%. Plus, for those families who have inherited a mistake in a gene, protecting that second working copy can be really important. 
Oh, that's an interesting point to make because I imagine with a discovery of a inherited genetic risk that might trigger a sort of nihilism, I guess, in a person where they think, oh, you know, well, what's the point of me living a healthy life? And so to know that sort of 30 to 50% that you can still have some control over your healthcare and your future risk through the way that you live your life, what you actually do on a day-to-day basis is empowering in some respects, do you think? I think genetic testing is very empowering and I think knowing about lifestyle change is very empowering. When people say to me, say a person in their 50s or 60s, why did I get this cancer? The short answer is usually you didn't die of an infection as a baby, a violent death in your 20s, a heart attack in your 40s or diabetes in your 50s. Most cancers do occur at an older age and that's usually because you've lived a long, good life. Being able to increase the longevity means that we will see more cancers. Two out of three people who live to be 80 get some kind of cancer. So some families, we actually see more cancer because of good genes. If you come from a large family living long lives, we'll see more cancer in that family potentially than in a very small family or one where everybody dies of heart attacks in their 40s. So what genetic testing is allowing you to do is just take control perhaps of an increased risk in your family and do something about it. And I think also the lifestyle changes, it's easy to say diet, exercise, healthy body weight, probably hard to do, but they do have a really big impact on protecting families. I just have one final question, if I may add, and I'm thinking about whether you think that the general public have enough awareness about the potential impacts of genetic mutation. Say, for example, BRCA. We all know the Angelina Jolie story. We know about breast cancer and ovarian cancer risk. And so if you have lots of women in your family who had breast cancer early, it's something you think about. But you might not necessarily think or know that it might impact your son's future risk factors for prostate cancer, for example. Do you think we have enough knowledge about that? I don't. I think a lot of the media that's written, the person writing it, present company excluded, of course, doesn't actually understand where these mutations come from. They think that you only inherit prostate cancer risk genes from your dad and breast cancer risk genes from your mum, that this is some sort of inevitability thing. I don't think there's much understanding about where cancer comes from, why anybody gets it what the genes are and how they work. And I think understanding how the genes work in protecting us from cancer, that these are actually genes we all carry, genes that protect us from cancer, and it's only when they're not working that the risk goes up. Once you start to understand that, it's actually very empowering and not a scary thing. Yes, thank you. And I hope in a small way that resources like this will help and contribute to that more nuanced discourse around all of these factors because it is complicated and I think people like you who are going out there and communicating and using language that people can understand you know the analogies about spell checking and recipe mistakes it just makes it a little bit more accessible for people who might find it quite daunting this is quite nerdy stuff right (laughs) and you're right I often do have people who say 
that was wonderful. I learned so much. I was really nervous and you were really nice and you didn't scare me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a nice thing. That must be a nice thing to hear at the end of your working day. Yes, I love what I do. Yeah. Well, and it comes out very passionately. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this. So before we go, we will include in the show notes, so the links to EverQ, the link to your website, the link to the history form that people can download for free from your website. Are there any other resources that would be helpful for people to check out if they want to learn more? Those would be the main two, I think. There are other resources Medline Plus is a US site with some fairly simple to understand discussion about very specific conditions. So if you're looking up a condition, Carney syndrome or something like that, that's a reputable site to go to. But I think most of the information about the testing and the management is on those two websites. But I'd also make use of your GPs and your other specialists who may be involved in your care. They're often very good at providing information too. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hilda. It's been absolutely fascinating and a real pleasure to discuss this with you. And I hope the listeners have found it as valuable as I have. Wonderful. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series, brought to you by the Oncology Network. For show notes, head over to www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and will give you access to exclusive content and educational podcasts. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Oncology Podcast.